Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Las Vegas, Nevada, a city accustomed to high stakes, but tonight, the highest stakes of all. Leadership of the free world, it's Tuesday night debates. Will it be a Hillary Hail Mary, or is it time to burn baby burn? Will Jim Webb take another life? And what about the block of granite? There's also another guy named something like Mayor McCheese. At the end of the night, one debater will get a rose from Anderson Cooper. I don't think that's exactly how it works. We'll find out in minutes when these five debaters kick off. It's no secret these people don't like each other. How big is this debate? Big. It is so big. We cannot communicate how big it is. Now let's throw it down to our sideline reporter, Colin McEnroe, with lots of girl questions and whether people have any boo-boos. Yes, well, in fact, uh, Bernie Sanders, I talked to Bernie Sanders' people. Uh, obviously, he's got some arthritis in his hip uh, and in one of his knees. Uh, that continues to bother him. He doesn't think it's going to limit his play tonight. Uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, has been through the usual concussion protocol. Uh, and I didn't bother to talk to the other three guys because they have no chance. Uh, so, no, but that's I'm actually not a sideline reporter. Although I'd, I'd actually kind of like to be a sideline. I could be Pam Oliver. Uh, all right. So uh, today on the news, we are going to talk about what kind of television was that debate uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, did CNN own too much of our political process? Uh, did they make Jim Webb look too weird or was it his job not to look so weird? We're also going to talk about uh, a renewal in the debate about tipping. This is kind of just bubbles up from time to time. We've actually done one Colin McEnroe show and one episode of Where We Live, both about tipping. But now, because of Danny Meyer's uh, declaration that his restaurants will not uh, have tipping anymore, uh, the, the conversation renews itself. And then lastly, the very uh, sad arc of Lamar Odom. He rose from the streets to basketball uh, – Lamar Odom. He rose from the streets to basketball stardom and then went on to reality TV stardom. And now it seems as though his origins are dragging him back down. Or maybe that's not exactly how the story goes. We'll talk about that as we go along. Who will we talk about that with on this day of excitement uh, in the world of tipping? Well, Jim Chapdelaine smashes his Stratocaster if his tip is less than 25 percent. Kate Russian is a poet. Don't forget to tip your poet at katerussianpoet.com. And Teresa Kramer is founder of The Cut, a publication for Connecticut young adults who leave 12 percent because they're so grumpy. So And poor. So Don't forget poor. poor. Poor and grumpy and poor and grumpy. All right. We're going to begin with a, a debate on CNN. It was staged live from a Las Vegas casino owned by Steve Wynn, who doesn't give the Democratic Party any money, uh, gives lots to the Republican Party. Uh, pop star Sheryl Crow sang the national anthem. Uh, Jim Chapterlain, probably the the less that we say about that, the better. Um, I just said that to the musician. It didn't go well. Though. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you know what? Cheryl Crow? Who could be less relevant than Cheryl Crow at this point? Uh, Lincoln Chafee, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> question. I don't, if you're going to just throw these softballs up here, I'm going to hit them. But. You guys, that was so scripted. I know. I saw you meeting but in the I'm corner. Trying. 
Um, I, you know, so um, I do want to talk a little bit about the way in which in these situations something that is part of American polity, uh, the, the, the process by which we choose our, our most important office, gets turned into a TV program and kind of owned by a TV network for a while so that they get to make all kinds of fairly arbitrary decisions about it and how it's going to go, starting with the fact, Teresa Kramer, that it's only going to be on cable television, which is a problem for cord-cutting, grumpy, young Connecticut adults such as yourself. It is a problem. I Well, so they allege that you can stream these things on the Internet, and I tried this with a, one of the Republican debates, and it just didn't go very well, and I couldn't tell if the Internet just hated me or if it was because it, they will ask you to authenticate that you have cable, mm-hmm. and I, I am capable of lying to these things and just using someone else's um, information, but it still wouldn't let me watch it. And so I just didn't even try when it came to this did you, debate. You didn't want to try to get virtual reality goggles and <laughs> do that thing? <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could have, they did do that, I, right? I that mean. would have induced a panic attack if I thought I was actually there. Um, so, yeah, no, I did not watch it. All of my exposure has been post-debate, which is totally fine at this point because you can just go back and watch all the pertinent clips that everyone else thought was interesting and skip over all the stuff that didn't matter. But, Jim Chapdelaine, this is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is – from that opening roll, I mean, you know, we made a little joke about it with the Monday Night Football stuff, but it, that's how it, they rolled in with it really looked like they were introducing a football game or something like that. And, and from there all the way along, so much of this was about CNN and how CNN wanted to do this and their alleged incredibly weak partnership with Facebook <laughs> and, and, and all this stuff. And you start – I don't know. It's a TV program more than it's part of our political process, although it's a deathly important part of our political process. I mean, maybe there's nothing you can do about that. Well, it's the commercialization of something that should be available to everybody. Um, and at one point I thought somebody was going to yell, I'm Spartacus, um, because it, it, it's – totally network owned and the fact that it's not accessible to everybody is absurd and and we we all should be seeing it um and the other thing that was bugging me was anderson cooper's new assertive personality like i'm going to show you people who's the real boss here i thought he was running for a while i don't know i, I couldn't quite tell I, was, I kind of appreciated a little bit anyway of the fact that he he did, in fact, confront them from time to time, and if they evaded something, he would say, "That's not the question." I, I, I don't mind you. that. I just felt like he was like that guy in the Hunger Games with the button that it right. push, and then you disappear <laughs> into somewhere. He's a little bit front and center, uh, and and pretty much the star of it, as opposed to I think maybe uh, which is he should be sort of invisible and yeah. just be the steadying hand. Jim Lehrer, a guy you didn't notice so much, right? Yeah. Right. So. Uh, Kate, not to make you uh, responsible for all diversity and lack thereof, but, you know, watching this debate, I mean, here we are, the Democratic Party supposedly, and I think one of the panelists even said this, one of the candidates even said this, you know, 50 percent not white people, you know. And so here you have, first of all, this all-white panel of five candidates. Uh, then you've got Anderson Cooper, like, like maybe the whitest guy uh, in America. Um, and then you've got um, a few other sort of subsidiary people who are responsible for asking the questions about diversity, except that it's even worse than that because Don Lemon, who's really the black 
journalist doesn't even get to ask a black journalist question. He gets to introduce a really weak black Facebook clip from who knows who. Um, and somehow or other, this didn't seem to me to be structured in any way like what we think the, the, we think the strength of the Democratic Party is, that it, it has triumphed in, in the climate of modern demographics. You know, that starting in 2008, you just couldn't run exclusively white and win. And they get that in the way that the Republicans have not gotten it. But there's something wrong with this, the, just the coloration of this debate. Well, you said it, Colin. I'm glad you did. Uh, just looking at the optics, I was disappointed. Uh, I felt that even though it was a, a big show, I found myself asking, well, where's the juice? I felt that the field didn't look robust. And I, it had me wondering where some of the people like Ann Richards were or uh, – Barbara Lee, the rep from California. Uh, and I don't know who made the decision that people would ask questions based on their their self-identity. I thought it was ridiculous or other people's perception of who they were. I thought it was ridiculous. So I saw the debate as a Democratic debate versus the Republican debate and I didn't think the, 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 Repu- the Democrats looked good. I thought they looked pale and pallid, and I wondered what— And, and pasty. Let's go pasty. <laughs> bad lighting. All the peas. Bad lighting. Sorry about that. But I, I did wonder when I looked at some of the candidates and listened to them what uh, base they were supposed to be energizing. That's, you know, what you just said, I haven't heard anybody say that, but it, it is – there are all kinds of contests going on in any given moment. And one of them was this debate against the other debates, right? That, that, was the, that was one of the football games being played was the Democratic debate versus the Republican debate. And, you know, so then, then the, the truism was, well, at least this was a debate about substance and there were issues being discussed and policies being discussed and people were not insulting one another and talking about whether they were bad-looking women or not or, you know, and nobody was saying horrible things about Mexicans. And I guess I'm really saying Donald Trump was not at this debate. But anyway, uh, there, there were substantial differences. But I also feel as though – and so I don't know um, how much of this has penetrated into the world of you cable cutters, uh, Teresa Kramer, that – you know, uh, CNN, they, I mean, they made all kinds of decisions about how they were going to structure this. And there was this weird rule. It seemed like, like a party game or something. Like if I say your name, yeah. then you get to talk. <laughs> but if I don't say your name, you can't talk. Um, but, I mean, it, it seemed if – you, if you cut through that, it seemed as though they really only wanted to have Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. They were trying to find some way to turn these other three guys – into department store mannequins. Not that that was going to be very hard to do given their overall level of preparation for the debate itself. But, you know, I do feel as though television, sometimes the only thing television measures, it's like, you know, the SAT test only really measures how well you do on the SAT test, how good you are at taking that test. It doesn't really correspond to anything else. Sometimes I feel television only really measures how good you are at being on television. And I think Jim Webb was a real victim of that. Um. I, I'm not sure what the question maybe is. I can exactly. jump, maybe yeah. I can jump in. Yeah. I can jump in. You, have a thought uh, yeah. you know, un, who was advising Jim Webb? Who dressed him? I was so distracted by his collar. I, I kept I know. wondering why his collar was so tight. It was tight. because it was pinned. I think it was because he actually buttoned the little things on the end of the collar, which so it made everything look like he it looked like he was wearing a neck pillow or something. Yeah, so I, yeah. I Googled him to see who he was. I said, oh, this guy is running the Navy? Really? Well, he's actually a pretty substantial guy, although I have to say Larry Wilmore did superimpose 
a middle toe on Jim Webb's head, and you could not tell the difference. And and I think I think they really did try to marginalize Jim Webb, who's not very nimble in front of the microphone. Not very nimble. He's, he's certainly not photogenic. He seemed like this anger. I'm going to get my time in. And then he blew all his time talking about how he's going to get his time. Yeah. And that doesn't seem very presidential. It, I, I, just, I do want to say, I mean, so here's who Jim Webb actually is. And I, I also, first of all, I want to confess, I'm as bad as anybody else. At a certain point, I was, I was live tweeting the debate. <laughs> at a certain point, because he was just obsessively complaining about how much time he wasn't getting, uh, and every time they would come back to him, he'd get very crabby about this, I tweeted, Jim Webb is basically the guy at Red Lobster whose order hasn't been taken yet. <laughs> you know? And then it got vastly re- retweeted and favored and I was very proud of my little self for doing this. But then, you know, you really sort of think about who this guy is. So he's been a U.S. senator. Uh, he's been secretary of the Navy. Uh, he's held lots of other impressive uh, posts. He he was uh, this incredibly decorated serviceman. And, you know, we're going to be talking about this whole thing where he talked about killing somebody. But the incident, I mean, really was an incident of incredible valor and heroism, the way that it has been described. He's also the author of 10 books, including several, I think, eight novels, some of them really critically acclaimed. And then this much talked about nonfiction uh, book that was, I think, it was called Born Fighting. It's the history of the Scotch. Irish in America. Um, and um, my favorite, he's taught at the Harvard Institute of Politics and the U.S. Naval Academy, where he's taught literature at the U.S. Na- uh, US Naval Academy. My favorite thing about him, I, I, I'd forgotten about it until I sort of went back and read about him, was in 2006, when this country was really convulsed about our involvement in Iraq, he was in a, at a reception for newly elected members of Congress. And then President Bush, he wouldn't get in line to have his picture taken with Bush. He was so appalled by mm-hmm. Bush's uh, policies in Iraq. So the president approached him later after this line for picture taking and said, how's your boy? Referring to Webb's son. It was a Marine serving in Iraq. And Webb said, uh, I'd like to get them out of Iraq, Mr. President. And Bush says again, that's not what I asked you. How's your boy? And Webb responded, that's between me and my boy, Mr. President. Uh, and he, there was a later, it was sort of leaked that he said, said to his friends afterwards that he was, he, he w- really wanted to slug Bush, <laughs> as he put it. I've seen some of that during the debate. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, part of what you're saying about his lack of sort of telegenics is also, I, so, you know, the Republicans have this much larger, more ridiculous field of, potential candidates but so much we knew who all those people were before not all of them but you know five or six of the very many of them were yeah before they you know before the debates right but these other guys on the stage with hillary and bernie you're like wait who who are you and he's very impressive he's got this long list of things but if you haven't been paying attention you're not going to know who he is because he hasn't been out there like ted cruz or marco rubio or any of these guys yelling about god knows what for the past four years yeah and he's he's not good at his own i think he actually does stuff right (laughs) but but i mean back to kate's point you know, I mean, you could also make the argument that you have to understand what your job is in every situation, particularly if you're running for president. Sure. Your job here is to get ready to be on television mm-hmm. and to be to figure out how this like one of the things you don't do on Jeopardy is yell at Alex. Right. Mm-hmm. We all know that, <laughs> it, you know, no matter how things are going for you on Jeopardy, you don't yell at Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. All right. Unless you're Sean Connery. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can yell at Will Ferrell pretending to be Alex Trebek, but nobody yells at Alex Trebek. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like. You know, maybe you don't like the rules or whatever, but you just don't spend your whole debate yelling at Anderson Cooper about you're not being right. right. And so, I mean, you really have to understand 
that cameras are on you. Mm-hmm. So as bad as I feel for this guy, because I feel like his, the, everything about him is, is shortchanged in the ways that we're saying, you know. You will see either a drastic change from coaching in the next debate or he'll be gone. I right. mean, because this is, this is the reality that he has to deal with. And he seems to have demonstrated a track record of dealing with reality. You'd think he'd be an ideal candidate because he's a moderate Democrat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a, a, a species that's almost as rare as a moderate Republican or a moderate. With better military credentials than any Republican he'll ever have to run against. And a head like a thumb. <laughs> I did get some hope this morning, though, because uh, I was wondering, you know, where are people like the um, the brothers, the Castro, Castro brothers, brothers yeah. from, uh, from Texas? Too and young. I, too young. Not, but however, it's been announced today that Hillary Clinton is hinting at uh, possibly naming Julian Castro as her VP running mate. Now, that would be exciting. That's a sitcom because they could both prank her all the time. <laughs> that's well, yeah, that's, that for, is true. That's made for television right there. <laughs> that's good. That's it's good, Jim. I thought – wait a second, didn't yeah. I? Well, also, if we can have a president whose middle name is Hussein, we can have a vice president whose last name is Castro, right? right. Um, but uh, no, I, that I, I've, that's sort of been dangled for a while there. That it's a great move for her to make, and and you know, I mean, they're not that much younger than some of the really young republic. They're not that much younger than Rubio, but, um, but yeah. So there is a little bit of hope. How old exactly are they? Oh, I wish you hadn't asked me that. I forty-one. Looked at, forty-one. Yeah. So Rubio is what forty-two. Yeah. So not not that much younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, well just played. Barely, barely younger. Well played. All right. We're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to uh, switch gears. We're going to talk about tipping. We won't have a lot of time for this, so if you have a call you want to make, uh, make that call. We got a lot of contenders, so please keep it brief. We need someone that understands the world today in this country. We need brain. Obama's finally trying to make a deal with Iran. All right. Welcome to Kate Russian and Teresa Kramer and Jim Chapdelaine. They are the news today. Uh, this is a topic that never goes away. As I said, both of uh, both John Nankowski and I have done shows about this. But some restaurants in the U.S. are starting to ban tipping and raise overall menu pricing to compensate. And now it's Danny Myers, Universal Hospitality Group, announcing his decision to end tipping in all of its restaurants this week. Uh, it's a, an effort partly to balance wage inequality in the industry because chefs and kitchen workers often bring in less because their pay isn't subsidized with tips. Meanwhile, uh, the wait staff is d- dependent on kind of a commission that's negotiable on the part of the commission payer, right? That's essentially what it is. They they have sub-minimum wage in many cases, and then they're dependent on this process over which they have a minimal amount of control. Uh, so the idea is pay them a real wage, uh, get rid of the tipping system. But, of course, a lot of consumers like the tipping system because it allows them to administer justice, you know, <laughs> that you can reward somebody who's good. I guess you can punish somebody who's bad. Uh, so uh, we don't won't have a lot of time for this conversation, but we have some. And you should tweet at us at WNPR Colin on this uh, at WNPR Colin if you have a strong opinion. Call in at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We might squeeze a phone call on the air. We'll start with you, uh, Teresa Kramer. Where are you on this? Yeah, uh, I have a hard time figuring out exactly how this will work, just in terms of the different kinds of restaurants. So if you're like a diner waitress. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have a problem with that because you're probably going to get paid minimum wage, which is probably less than you're actually making in reality. At, at you know, but if you're working at a fine steakhouse where you're making like hundreds of dollars on any bill, tipping anyway, it might work out for you because I, 
I mean, the math, of, it, there's a lot of math involved, and I get confused. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, because I had the exact opposite reaction. Yeah. So, but either we're both mm-hmm. right, or one of us is wrong or something. My reaction was, for example, I know somebody, mm-hmm. uh, another Kate, uh, um, who put herself through college and law school by working as a waitress at, you know, at the Max restaurants, right. which are kind of high ends, because, because there the numbers are big enough mm-hmm. so that if you're really good at what you do and you're a good waitress and you work hard, mm-hmm. you know, you can get enough money to put yourself through law school, which you can't do at the diner, right? Your tips mm-hmm. are never, never going to be big enough because the, all of the numbers are too small. So mm-hmm. I was sort of thinking, well, then maybe the person who's really going to get screwed or squeezed or something like that is that person who could have made a lot of money on tips being really good at it. But I had also had that thought, okay. and I don't know which so one is right Basically, either, we don't know what we're talking we about. Kate, to, Kate uh, help us understand this. Yeah, well, I've worked uh, as a chambermaid for tips and a doom buggy driver, and I've waited on tables in my 20s on, on Cape Cod. So I think because of that, I tend to over-tip. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I also think I over-tip uh, because of stereotype threat, because there's this notion out there that black women don't tip well mm-hmm. and god forbid that i should under tip mm-hmm. and i would also say save me from the group tip because i hate going out with a bunch of people oh, the and then being the one to feel guilty and have to make up the difference for not enough tip mm-hmm. so i say eliminate tipping and pay the workers what they deserve it, do, it does make a certain amount of sense. And Jim, I want to get your opinion about this, but I also want to say that uh, since Jim and I, our birthdays are pretty much uh, synchronous. Uh, of course, another thing that would go away is calculating the tip, which I always feel it's a nice neurological check for people who yeah, are I think our I age. Would say like, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it last night. Yeah, um, you know, I was a waiter. It's my only real job after high school was a, a waiter in, uh, back at the beloved Black Dog Taverns. Um, and I know. I waited on dinosaurs. Um, And, you know, you can make a lot of money with tips if you're a nice person. And uh, occasionally you'll get stiffed, not very often. But I I wonder if the incentive goes away. And I wonder if our habitual inclination Mm -hmm. to tip people – I mean, how do you get rid of a lifetime habit of like, well, I it's really, really need hard to. When I, you go I, to I, Europe or somewhere where they don't tip, they and you're like, well, and they look at understand. you like you're an idiot yeah. for giving them extra money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they have health care. Mm-hmm. Tipping can be a little awkward too, because sometimes if the um, if the owner is there, mm-hmm. especially if the owner is older than me, like, do I tip? Do I not tip? Is this demeaning? You know, I, I find it very awkward. And then there's sometimes. all those other professions where. Who aren't affected by the, by the waitstaff and by the restaurant industry that you are supposed to tip, or maybe you're not supposed to? Do I tip the guy who just pulled my bag out of the car? I yeah. could have done that. I didn't ask you. I, I can tell you, know? you, I never tip my surgeons. No, I just got in the habit of not doing it. So how you tip is often, or how you think about tipping, is sort of a byproduct of how you view mankind or humankind, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, well, really, because if, yeah. you, if, you, if, you if you think that I, if, I, if tipping stops, if it goes away, mm-hmm. then people will have no incentive to be any good at anything. Mm-hmm. You know? So and, when, when did tipping start then? Did cave people, like, throw each other a bone? Well, you know, there was an article in the New York Times today talking about oh, – it was an op-ed mm-hmm. talking about some of the roots of tipping actually being linked to slavery mm-hmm. and wow. people – you know, And to reconstruction, <laughs> right? Because the whole yes. – the notion was that people were uncomfortable pl- uh, paying black people a wage – so, so that tipping became sort of something for the black service sector, uh, that it would be sort of 
voluntary to pay to pay black people as opposed to compulsory to play it's in order to maintain some of the vestiges of slavery that's the argument made in the op-ed uh, is that op-ed why bill. it remains just the service industry basically well yeah and it's yeah. i mean i think that is part of it but you know it also goes to perception so why why don't they why don't you tip in europe well in europe well, France is the country that I knew the best. So in France, you know, I mean, this is considered a profession, right? You know, people feel as though they've trained for it. It's a, it's something that they they're take. actually insulted sometimes. Yeah, if you yeah. Tip. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Same in uh, uh, Amsterdam, right? Because because the, the understanding is, I mean, and, and there's a lot that goes along with that too. I mean, because of who they think they are, not unreasonably. I, mean, I shouldn't have put it that way, be, but, but because of their understanding of what their job is and but that they're it's a equal to you. Yeah, that mm-hmm. they are equal to you. That I mean, one of the things that Americans r- routinely do not understand in France is that you really do address the waiter as Monsieur. Mm-hmm. You know, he he expects a certain amount of respect from you. Right. He considers himself to be a professional as opposed to a servant, mm-hmm. and so the more you treat him like professional and the less you we often treat wait staff like kind of like servants mm-hmm. maybe like servants we like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why maybe the friendly waiter always gets a bigger tip you know that they have to ingratiate themselves to you besides the food they have to bring a smile and a joke and maybe speaking to your point you know they're the house person you know coming to bring you the the maybe it's vestigial yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's so great for a lot of women to have to put up with mm-hmm. uh, a boorish customer uh, because she's worried about her tip. The, but the other part of that is, I mean, so rarely in life do we have that kind of ability to meet out justice, right? Mm-hmm. Like I like – Okay, I had to make a tip last night. I went out to dinner. It was my birthday. My son and I went to out for sushi. And the waitress, in fact, was, I think, newly arrived in America, mm-hmm. uh, not completely conversant with the language. And so she really struggled. But she really worked hard at it, too. Like, uh, taking down our order, <laughs> she was writing a little short story. Like, anything that got said. If I said, um, I think she wrote, um, right. you know, but just because that was important. Maybe, um, is something. Right. Who knows? Right. You know, and so, I mean, I thought, well, you know, it didn't all work out exactly right. And certain things didn't come exactly the – but, you know, I mean, I gave her 20 percent because that's like – it seems right, you know? I mean, she's trying to make it in America. And it's your birthday. And it's my birthday. So um, – so, and I think we do that all the time. But, you know, like if somebody fixes your car really well, you, they get paid the same amount mm-hmm. as if they screw it up and – Maybe you know. we should just start tipping everybody. Well, I like, don't know. And, and I have to say this. A doctor who uh, takes your appendix out mm-hmm. because he's supposed to and takes it out because he – isn't supposed to gets the same amount. Right. I mean, there, there might mm-hmm. be repercussions. I, but. I, I do always tip it. I tip it my physical because uh, it just seems, you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. But, but then if, if you're David you, Letterman's doctor, then they can. If they, well, if they don't find anything, I feel like there's right. 20 bucks. Yeah. Thanks. But then if you're David your Letterman's surgeon, you can become a, yeah, a can. celebrity. That's All right. right. They're telling us we have to go. Uh, some very nice people are now going to ask you to support this show. It's so important that you do that. Support the show and the station. And then they say, come on now, where's your smile? Thank you for listening to the show. Colin McEnroe produced it with some help from Betsy Kaplan, and I produced it too. <clears throat> I hope you enjoyed you know, the show, which I produced. Okay, bye now. I'd also like to thank Professor Dumbledore for providing me with this apparently invisible tip jar. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Amanda Gallagher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lincoln Chafee. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff fighting over the tip pool, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, The Scramble visits with Bob Woodward. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we'll do other stuff on Monday, but I've already recorded an interview with Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward, uh, of all people, of course, thought that he knew everything there was to know about Watergate. And then it turned out Alexander Butterfield, who's the guy who, who revealed the existence of the fabulous uh, taping system, uh, who's now 88, he's now 89, but when he was 88, told Bob Woodward, no, actually, there's some stuff you don't know. Uh, and that's what our conversation is going to be about. Do you Monday. mean that literally or in general or specific to this topic? Oh, yes. Well, actually, about, about Watergate, yeah. yeah. I mean, there may be – there's a lot of other things. I mean, Bob Woodward doesn't know how to turn on a laptop. I mean, there's a lot of things he doesn't know, but uh, this is about Watergate. Uh, all right, so here we go. Uh, for our final segment here, I want, let me reintroduce Teresa Kramer from The Cut, uh, poet Kate Russian from KateRussianPoet.com, uh, and uh, Jim Chapdelaine, guitar hero, producer, cancer activist, many other things. Um, uh, they're the nose here today. Um, so for our final topic, for a while we were talking about and reading this uh, essay that ran in the New York Times Sunday Magazine last weekend uh, by Wesley Morris. who has got the greatest job in the world, Pulitzer Prize winning critic. Wesley Morris is the new kind of critic at large, try to synthesize all of culture, a critic for the New York Times. And he, he wrote this piece called um, "Why The Year We Obsess Over Identity. And the, the subhead was 2015's headlines and cultural events have confronted us with, with malleability of racial, gender, and sexual and reputational lines. Who do we think we are? Well, that was kind of a hard thing. To, I mean, he says some really interesting stuff. I'll read one paragraph. Uh, he's talking about Rachel Dolezal, who's kind of the poster girl for this. If you remember, she uh, was the head of a Texas division of the NAACP. Was it San Antonio? I think it might have been. Uh, and she said uh, she turned out. She said she was black. She turned out not to be. Uh, she represented. So he says there was something oddly compelling about Rachel Dolezal too. She represented dementedly, but also earnestly, a longing to transcend our historical past and racialized present. This is a country founded on independence and yet comfortable with racial domination. A country that has forever been trying to legislate the lines between whiteness and non-whiteness, between borrowing and genocidal theft. We've wanted to think that we're better than a history we can't seem to stop repeating. Great paragraph, like so many of Wesley's lapidary para, uh, paragraphs. But once again, hard to get around without having um, a specific example. And then tragically, one has appeared, and that is Lamar Odom, uh, an incredibly talented basketball player uh, back in the day, uh, rose up from, I think he played for Rhode Island in the college level, played for a series of pro teams, uh, and shown while, while playing for the Lakers. Uh, and then something else happened at an August 2009 party thrown by his teammate or for his teammate, Ron Artest. Uh, he met Khloe Kardashian and the rest, unfortunately, is TV history. Keeping up with the Kardashians began to include him. There was a spinoff called Khloe and Lamar. Uh, in uh, January of 2011. And then other things started to happen. His basketball career took a turn for the worst. Things didn't work out all that well with Chloe either. Um, and now he's been found uh, in a legal uh, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada brothel uh, and is in the hospital and is very, very, very sick. And uh, one senses he, he may not make it. There's a uh, obviously the implication being that drugs are somehow or other involved in all this. So, um, I don't know. In some ways, he kind of uh, is, to me, a story about trying to transcend something that maybe he ultimately didn't transcend. But, Kate, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you wrote uh, in one of the many emails exchanged before the show today, branding like social media, Hollywood, reality TV, etc., can overtake and consume our frail human selves. Tell us more about what you mean by that. Well, 
you know, Lamar Odin had talent, money, fame, and I guess he and um, he and Chloe, I guess, felt like they'd hit the jackpot when they met each other and got married one month later, and all of that wasn't enough to help him deal and overcome whatever demons uh, he he was he was dealing with. I think it's it's really a, a tragedy. And I think a, an added irony is that the owner of the brothel where he was found, uh, Dennis Hoff, actually had his own HBO uh, reality show called Cat House. And so it just compounds the tragedy, I think. We have this reality show within reality show within reality show. And at the heart of it, we've got this very talented young man uh, – in a an induced coma, fighting for his life. Um, so, and, and actually, you said tragedy, Jim Chapley, and also in our emails. I think you said there was something Shakespearean about the whole story. Uh, say what you mean. Well, he's so such an epic figure now. I mean, it's such a tragic way to for him to go out because he had transcended uh, a, a, a family that was rife with drug abuse and addiction. And by virtue of his talent, somehow managed to to elevate himself into a, a pretty good place. And he was always a really likable, affable teammate. I I thought I, I really liked him as compared with the uh, Meta World Peace or or Ron Artest, who was always kind of like cranky. Um, and, and I think it, this idea of it dovetailing with the the cat house thing that Kate brought up is even more weird than than anything. Um, but for him to go out like this does seem like an uh, epic tragedy, and, and it doesn't look like he's going to come back. So um, yeah, so this uh, um, Teresa, this this man Lamar Odom, it was a product of public housing, um, and uh, who dealt with very tough circumstances growing up. His uh, father was largely absent. His mother died of cancer when he was twelve. He then lived with his grandmother, um, you know, in, in a pretty tough uh, part of uh, of Queens, I think, and um, and. Then the, I guess I think maybe one of the lessons here, maybe an obvious lesson is if you want to transcend your origins, if you want to escape who in fact maybe society intended you to be, which is a victim and someone living at the lower strata of society, uh, a basketball career is a great thing. Maybe reality television is not a good place to go to transcend who you are, although for a while you might. I don't know. You did get a chance to see uh, a little bit of this uh, as it played out before you cut the cord apparently. You got a chance to see a little bit. I don't know. Did you have any theories about what reality television either did or didn't accomplish for Lamar Odom? I, I think it would be too simple to blame um, reality television. I get the I get the impression that he already had a problem that was sort of being hidden on the show to some degree. She, you know, Chloe knew that he had a drug problem and that he was um, cheating. And um, they sort of there was one article about how sort of sensitively he was actually treated on keeping up with the Kardashians. And a lot of that was intentionally hidden from the cameras, it seems like. And it wasn't until he, his spirals, you know, got to the point where Chloe left him and and it was in the tabloids that it sort of became a problem. And I mean, there are plenty of people with very similar stories to Lamar Odom in the NBA and, uh, you know, all across professional sports, I would imagine, who do not have this particular problem. And it's 
and I wonder if um, the American people can so, will sort of get a lesson from this that drug abuse is much more serious that it, you know it's not a failing of your of your character it's a disease and I I wonder if people will sort of get that from this story. I mean, Kate, it seems to me that this is uh, maybe I'm forcing these two things into collision, the Lamar Odom story and this Wesley Morris uh, essay. But his whole essay is about that question. I mean, the American myth is, to a certain degree, that our circumstances are malleable and fungible, that, you know, we we don't have to stay at the station uh, into which we are born, uh, that uh, almost anything is transcendable. And then the modern myth is that things are even more transcendable than they ever have been before. We have a president who's both black and white. We have a reality. T- we have Olympic athletes, male Olympic athletes who become women uh, and, and, and become, you know, idolized in some quarters for that, that, that all kinds of things can change. And that seems to rub up against this sense that at another level, nothing changes, that things are really, really hard to change. And you look at Lamar Odom and it's hard not to think that, wow, I mean, he kind of had everything, but in some ways it feels to me, maybe I'm, I'm imputing too much, like his past, his origins are dragging him down. There was something, some early wound that he couldn't escape. Now, the word that comes to my mind is isolation, that somehow, you know, in the, in the middle of... Um, the NBA, he's an NBA star, he's a reality TV star, and still somehow he's essentially isolated. And I guess the, the question for me is uh, how does someone like him or, or any of us uh, deal with that, that isolation? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and from an early age, from his history, it sounds like that's the thing that, that he had as a companion was no companion. All right. I'm being reminded right now that because of fundraising, we've only got about four and a half minutes or so left, four minutes left to do our endorsing. So let's do our endorsing. We have to say goodbye to Lamar Odom. I hope not permanently. But uh, Teresa Kramer, what, who or what would you like to endorse? There's a documentary that you I believe you can still watch on Netflix and I think is being re-released because it's called You've Been Trumped. And it's all about Donald Trump terrorizing these poor farmers in Scotland so that he can uh, – Try and build a golf course and basically ruin the Scottish coastline, and it is uh, yeah. If you want to see who Donald Trump is, watch watch. You've been trumped. All right, uh, Kate Russian. What would you like to endorse? Well, the Hartford Public Library is uh, launching its One Book Hartford campaign, and this year it's a novel by James Baldwin. If Beale Street could talk. And folks can get information from the Hartford Public Library online, hplct.org. All right. And uh, Jim Chapterlane? Um During our uh, multiple emails, I went back and referenced uh, the, one of my favorite books, The Moral Animal by Robert K. Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't provide me with any guidance, but I realized, boy, I could get lost in this book very quickly. Uh, that... And uh, probably people should dig into their wallets and send you guys a couple of bucks. Right. We'll endorse you guys. He endorses pledge, pledging to us. So Kate helps me remember that on Tuesday, and you still have time, really. This is not, this is not a slow read. It's a pretty fast read. Uh, Purity by Jonathan Franson is going to be our sort of book club discussion. We're going to do a one book thing. She's shaking her head. Oh, you're shaking her head. Yes or no? She's shaking her fist. <laughs> oh, that's not good. Purity by John, uh, Jonathan Franson. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday. We've got uh, a panel uh, of Alex Dubin and Julia Pastel and uh, Rand Cooper. 
newspaper. We'd love for you to read Purity. You could knock it off over the weekend, really, because uh, you'll enjoy the show so much more. That'll be on Tuesday, so that please do gesture, that. Teresa. I, I want to endorse the, the podcast that I just appeared on, uh, Unorthodox. It's hosted by uh, an occasional nose panelist, Mark Oppenheimer, and it's, uh, it's about Jewish life, Jewish affairs, Jewish news. I was the, uh, what they call the Gentile of the week on the show, or, or I refer to, I prefer Token Goy or Goykin. Uh, but uh, it's actually a great podcast, and they've sort of mastered what I think to be the heart of podcasting, which is to have a stable cast of, you know, they've got three people who, the interplay of their personalities is really what makes the podcast. So, um, so just check this out. Even if you're not Jewish, uh, check it out. Unorthodox. Uh, it's uh, run by tablet, uh, but I think it's part of that sort of panoply network of podcasts. What else was I going to uh, say? Oh, um, I do want to endorse that Wesley Morris uh, essay. If you didn't catch it in the New York Times last week, please do. Uh, if nothing else, for a description of the most recent Nancy Meyer movie, she's the one who done, she directs that like stuff. So, so good. Yeah, she, <laughs> he refers so to the new good. one as another of Nancy Meyer's bourgeois pornographies. Uh, for and that, there's even an Eddie Van Halen reference right. in there. For, so for that phrase alone, read Wesley Morris. Wesley Morris is great anyway. And since I have, I actually have a few seconds left. You guys were so succinct. Um, I will – if you ever get a chance to see this, this is so on, on the nose to what we've just been talking about. Um, the play Red Velvet, which is the story of the black American actor Ira Aldridge, who in the 1830s uh, uh, began performing classic Shakespearean roles to European audiences – uh, and who were shocked. They were shocked to see a black Othello. They were used to Edmund Keane playing him as a sort of bronzed Arab or to centuries of white actors playing in blackface. So uh, I've seen it uh, performed by Adrian Lester, one of the great actors in the world. It's also been done by D- John Douglas Thompson. If it ever gets staged again, I don't know who's left to do it. Those two guys are about as good as it gets. But Red Velvet is an amazing play. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. I thought Anderson Cooper did a good job. I'm giving him a 5% tip, Bernie. Hillary, why are you one percenters, such low percenters when it comes to tipping? Let's see how much Jim Webb and Lincoln Chafee are tipping, Anderson. Hey, guys. Guys? Aw, they stiffed him.